be continuing in our series today entitled Connected, where we are looking at four key relationships in the life of a Christian. So Pastor Nate kicked us off talking about our relationship with God. And then last week, he talked about our relationship with our families. Those were fantastic as usual. If you missed them, go on our website. You can watch those and get caught up. Uh, Today, we are going to continue talking about our relationship with others. Now, others is a broad term. Who are these others? Uh, My emphasis this morning is going to be on others in the church. And the reason for that is because the the passage we're going to look at in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, that is the emphasis of the passage. Uh, With that said, these principles and these truths that we're going to talk about this morning, they can apply broadly to any relationship in your life, whether it's your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, strangers, anybody. You can apply these principles. However, I want to make sure that my emphasis matches the emphasis of the text. So while you're turning in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and if you don't own a Bible, look around in the chairs around you, those blue Bibles in the chair. Uh, take that home with you. That's our gift to you if you need one. Um, and it's going to be on the screen as well. So just give you a quick background on uh, Philippians. Uh, the Apostle Paul was writing a letter to the church in Philippi, and he's writing it from prison. And so the Philippian church had sent a man named Epaphroditus to deliver a gift to the Apostle Paul, and this letter is basically Paul's response to them. And so he begins this letter by thanking them for their generosity, and he's trying to comfort them about his current circumstances in prison, and he wants to tell them to stand strong in the midst of opposition for the sake of effective gospel ministry. And it's at this point in the letter, in chapter 2, we see Paul transitions from external conflict facing the church, and he begins to address internal conflict facing the church, and he's instructing the church how to guard against unity, or disunity, rather, (laughs) Uh, to make sure that they are a unified church body, that they're guarding against disunity. And as we look at this text today, uh, we're going to see three main things. First, we're going to see that unity in Christ is essential for effective gospel ministry. If you're taking notes, I'll repeat that. Unity in Christ is essential for effective gospel ministry. Secondly, we're going to see that the pathway to unity is humility. The pathway to unity is humility. And thirdly, we're going to see that Jesus is our ultimate example of humility. Now, I just want to say quickly, I know we got the kids with us today. Parents, if your kid's fidgety or making noise, don't worry about it. It doesn't bother me. It shouldn't bother you. Uh, mine's probably going to be the worst one, so <laughs> don't worry about it. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Let's go to our text this morning. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you uh, for who you are, God. And I just pray that you would move me out of the way, Lord, that you would guard my mouth from error and you would uh, guard everyone else's ears from error, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would guide us into truth, Lord, and you'd empower us uh, to to receive your word today and, and live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first thing we see here in this section is the necessity of unity in Christ. So in verse one, we see this series of if statements, right? He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, so on and so forth. And the obvious answer to these if statements is what? Well, of course there is. Of course there's comfort or encouragement in Christ. Of course there's comfort in love. Of course there's participation in the spirit. Um, And so Paul, what he's doing is he's grounding what he's about to tell them about unity in these spiritual realities that are true for every Christian. He's beginning not by addressing their relationship with one another. He's beginning by addressing their relationship with Christ and in Christ. So based on the encouragement that's found in Christ, based on the comfort which comes from divine love, based on the oneness or the fellowship that we share in the spirit and based on these tender mercies that we see in the lives of believers, he's saying, because of these things, you ought to live in a certain way. He's telling them they ought to live in love and harmony, not just because they like each other, they might, but more importantly than that, he's saying that as a member of God's family and as a member of God's household, you have a responsibility to treat one another in a certain way. And so this this unity is not the result of a natural oneness or a natural fondness that we have, but it's supernatural, This oneness is supernatural, and that's why Paul's appeal for unity doesn't begin with their relationships with one another. He begins with their relationship in Christ. Basically, what he's saying, he's not telling them to be one in Christ. He's telling them, you are one in Christ, now you need to act like it. That's an objective reality you need to live in accordance with. And as Christians, we must view our relationship with one another as a direct reflection of our relationship with Christ. Why? Because our oneness with Christ is the foundation of our oneness with one another. Our relationship with Christ is what every other relationship flows out of. So once Paul has reminded his readers of this, he goes on to tell them, verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he uses that phrase, complete my joy. There's almost a fatherly connotation here. You know, this is a church that Paul actually planted. He loves this church. If you read Philippians, it's very clear. Uh, He has a deep love and affection. And so there's this fatherly sense that says, hey, you guys are doing great. Uh, There's awesome things happening, but you know what would really complete my joy? You know what would really make me happy? If you just get along. (laughs) Parents, how many of you love it when your kids get along? It's amazing. And then five seconds later, they ruin it. <laughs> so just, just hear this fatherly connotation that Paul has here for this church, and, and I would argue for us today as well. Here in verse two, Paul gives us a working definition of unity and what it looks like. He said it's being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. So 
just to be clear, having the same mind doesn't mean we share the same opinion on everything, right? That's, that's impossible, totally impossible. It's not about uh, getting rid of our individuality or getting rid of critical thinking. No, it's not about that. What it's about is having the same mindset, having the same set of attitudes, having the same demeanor with regard to the way we love and serve one another in the church. What he wants us to see here is that we have the same mind in that we treat each other a certain way. Why? Because we're united in our purpose. We're united in Christ. And so this is the kind of unity that we are to pursue. And in the following verses, he's gonna tell us how to get there. We're gonna see that the pathway to unity is humility. Verse three, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So selfish ambition and conceit, he's pointing out to us, they're the opposite of humility and they're the enemies to our unity. Selfish ambition pursues personal goals for selfish reasons. It's often at the expense of other people, right? You don't care who you have to step on to get where you wanna go. It's worried only about personal advancement. It's looking out for me, looking out for myself. Conceit seeks personal acclaim and glory. It often results in vanity and uh, an inflated self-image. It, it makes us want to promote ourselves over and against other people. And I think what we can clearly see here is that selfish ambition and conceit are two sides of the same coin. They're pride. That's what they are. He's addressing pride here. Now, how many of you know a prideful person? Don't raise your hand, especially if they're sitting next to you. But prideful people are not easy to get along with, are they? No, not at all. Now, get a bunch of prideful people together in a church, and what do you have? You have a recipe for disaster. So he's telling them, you need to rid yourselves of pride. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Get rid of it. Kill it. There's no place for pride in the life of a Christian. Proverbs 11.2 says this, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. And the Bible says in numerous places, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. What does this mean? This means that as Christians, we don't use people. We don't take advantage of people. We don't treat people like they owe us something. We don't do things just to make ourselves look good. We don't promote ourselves. We don't put others down just to service our own egos, right? That's not the way of a Christian, but rather we are to practice humility. Let's talk for a second about what humility is not. Most of you have probably heard the well-known quote before. It says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? That's a helpful way to look at it. We're, it Humility doesn't equal low self-esteem. It's not that we're thinking poorly or badly of ourselves. And in fact, I would argue that self-pity and low self-esteem, that's really another form of pride. And why do I say that? Why? Because it's ultimately still focused on me. Whether I think I'm hot stuff or you know, the worst person on the earth, I'm still thinking about me. And that's the problem. Here's what C.S. Lewis had to say about humility. He said, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. 
He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And that's the point. It's not, the, the point of humility is that we're just not, not self-focused. We're others focused. John Piper once defined humility this way. He said, humility is the opposite of entitlement. That's so simple and so profound. It's the opposite of entitlement. Humble people don't walk around feeling like the world owes them something, right? And Paul spells out for us what this humility looks like in verse three. He says, count others more significant than yourselves. Or you may be more familiar with the King James Version, which says, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now, both of these translations, I think, have a potential to be misunderstood or misconstrued. And it's, it's because we're not saying more significant or better in the sense that you're literally more valuable or you're literally more skilled at something or more morally upright. That's not the point. What he's saying is we count others more significant to be served. We count others as worthy of our self-sacrificing service. I wanna illustrate it to you this way. Imagine a really important person that we would all be happy to see walked in the door. I was gonna use the president of the United States as an example, but I don't know if that's gonna work. Uh, so whether it's an athlete or a singer or a movie star, whatever, you name it, somebody's walking through the door that you are super jazzed up about seeing. What, how are you gonna respond? Oh, right this way, let me help you find a seat. You, oh, you didn't get a bulletin when you walked in here, take mine. Let me get you a cup of coffee. Do you know where the bathroom is? You're gonna go out of your way to serve them and make them feel welcome, why? Because you believe they're more significant than you. And that's how he's telling us we are to treat everyone around us in the church. That word count is important, why? We're counting others more significant than ourselves. That means they may not deserve it. And chances are they probably don't, but we count them as more significant. We make a conscious decision to treat people this way. Whereas pride, pride makes us treat people as a means to an end. Look, what can I get from this person? Where, where's this relationship gonna get me? Whereas humility is looking on how to self-sacrificially serve others. That's the point of humility. And so in the verses to follow, Paul points us to Jesus as the ultimate example of humility. Now, think about it this way. We are not objectively better than Jesus in any conceivable way, right? And yet, Jesus counted us more significant. And yet, Jesus chose to serve us. So what does that tell us? That tells us you're never too good, you're never too important to serve others. Guess what? None of us are really that important. Sorry to ruin your day. <laughs> but Jesus gave us this example. We're never too good. We're never too important to serve others. Verse four, he said, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So yes, we are supposed to look to our own interests. Of course, we should be concerned about our spiritual, our mental, our physical welfare. 
We should take responsibility for personal holiness. We should take responsibility for our education, our mental health. We should, we should go make a living so that we can provide food, clothing, shelter, all of that. All of these things are biblical commands. They're good things. They keep us from being a burden on those around us. They, they position us to be able to serve people more effectively. But let me ask you, how often do we as Christians only concern ourselves with our own interests? We get so caught up and wrapped up in everything I need, my job, my finances, my, you name it. We get caught up and we only serve our own interests. What Paul is communicating here is that humility finds the balance between looking to our own interests and yet also look, tending to the interests of others. We ought to be looking after the interests of others and serving them to meet their needs, sometimes at our own expense. I'll give you a few examples. If you're a parent in the room and your kid comes up to you and says, Daddy, will you play with me? With mine, it's usually, Daddy, will you build Legos with me? And you just want to look your kid in the eye and say, do you have any idea how tired I am? Since you came along, tired is now a permanent part of my personality. <laughs> and there's nothing I want to do more in this moment than sit here and do nothing. But whose interests are you going to serve in that moment? Preaching to myself here. Or maybe you're like me and you like to fish. And so you've got this fishing trip planned. The weather's finally going to be good on a weekend. You got everything prepped and ready to go. Then you find out there's a new family in the church that moved to the area and doesn't have anyone to help them move because they don't know anybody. Whose interests are you going to serve? Or maybe you've been saving money. You're going to buy this cool new thing uh, or maybe take a vacation, whatever. You earned it. You worked hard. You deserve it, right? But then you find out about a need in the congregation that is just so massive. No, no one person could possibly bear the weight of it. Whose interests are you going to serve in that moment? So this, Paul says, is the mind that we are to have in common. It's, it's the mind of Christ. Verse five, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ, meaning the heart posture, the, the, the posture of unity through humility. Everything he's talked about up to this point is the mind of Christ. And what does he say? This mind is yours in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, Paul is not commanding you to obtain something you don't already have. He's saying you already have this, now act like it. Pastor Nate said in a sermon one time, he said the New Testament pattern for obedience is be who you are. It's really profound. Because when we understand who we are in Christ and act like it, that's obedience. Be who you are. Understand, you already have the mind of Christ. Now follow the example of Jesus. Thirdly, this morning, because Jesus is the ultimate example of humility. In verses 6 through 11, Paul is describing this example that Jesus has given us for humility in the earthly ministry of Jesus, including his incarnation when he was born as a man, his humiliation at the cross, and his exaltation. And so it's believed that these verses we're about to get into are actually an early hymn or perhaps an early creed. And this is something that the church in Philippi would have been familiar with. And I want to tell you, these are some of the most theologically rich and mysterious verses in the whole Bible. They really are. Now, most preachers use illustrations to make things simpler and easier to understand. 
Whereas Paul here says, here, let me illustrate it to you with a really deep theological concept that's really kind of confusing. Thanks, Paul. But yes, the section, it's full of rich theology and Christology, and I wanna make sure we don't lose sight of his point here. Paul's point is that Jesus is our example of humility. Why? So that we will be unified. His point is we really can get along and we really can have real unity because of what Jesus has done. These aren't merely intellectual concepts, but like most theological concepts, they are exceedingly practical for us when we understand them and apply them properly. So in verse six, it says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It says Jesus was in the form of God and he was equal with God. What that means is Jesus always was and always will be the second person of the Trinity. We serve a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John 1 says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the Jesus that we serve. This is Jesus, pre, during, and post-incarnation. This is the Jesus that we serve. And although Jesus, as God, held the status of God, he's worthy of all glory, all honor, all praise, he did not count this a thing to be grasped or held onto for his own advantage. So he emptied himself. He poured himself out for us. Now, what does it mean when the Apostle Paul says he emptied himself? This, is a, this particular word has sparked so much controversy since the early church, and for good reason, because it's very important what that means. I'm gonna tell you a couple things it does not mean. It does not mean that Jesus ceased to be God or gave up his deity. It does not mean that he lost his divine attributes. There are some people that will teach you that when Jesus came to the earth as a man, he temporarily gave up his godness, if you will. He ceased to be God temporarily. That is a lie. And if you're being taught that by anybody in your life, you need to run. The rest of verse seven tells us what this means. It says, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is his incarnation. This is what we celebrate every year at Christmas time, right? That Jesus being God, he chose to condescend. He chose to be born as a human being. The creator of everything took on the form of the creation. The one who's worthy of all service became a servant. He subjected himself willingly to things like hunger and thirst and fatigue, and temptation, things that he never would have had, had to deal with if he had not been born as a man. Jesus didn't lose any of his divine nature. What did he do? He added a human nature. This was, some have called it subtraction by addition. Jesus, the God man, did not become 50% God and 50% man, but no, he was both fully God and fully man. Two natures, one person. John Calvin put it this way. He said, the son of God descended miraculously from heaven 
yet without abandoning heaven. He was pleased to be conceived miraculously in the virgin's womb, to live on the earth and hang upon the cross, and yet always filled the world as from the beginning. You confused yet? Yeah, me too. <laughs> Here's an illustration that uh, I borrowed from a guy named Gavin Ortland that I think may be helpful to you today. It says, there is not a one-to-one correspondence between heaven and earth. They are infinitely and qualitatively distinct. Therefore, Christ is able to be fully localized on earth and remain extra, just as Tolkien could have written himself into the story of the Lord of the Rings, thus having the properties of a character in that story, while still remaining in Oxford and thus retaining his original properties. Tolkien could not have traveled to Cambridge while remaining in Oxford, but he could have written himself into Middle Earth while remaining in Oxford. And that is because Middle Earth and Oxford are not just different places, like Oxford and Cambridge, but different realms. In the same way, in the same mysterious and wonderful way, God the Son is able to become fully man on earth while remaining fully God in heaven, one person with two natures or one person in two different realms. And Paul's emphasis on this in this passage, this emptying, this Jesus pouring himself out for us, it's in order to point us to the humility of Jesus. Wayne Grudem put it this way. He said, the emptying includes a change of role and status, not essential attributes or nature. It's not that Jesus was anything less than he was before. It's that in becoming a man and becoming a servant, the eternal son of God performed the greatest act of humility imaginable. It is not Sorry, it is the single greatest act of counting others more significant than yourself. He poured himself out for you and me and all who would believe. He was, verse eight, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, Jesus was born for a purpose and that was to die. He was born to die And as if becoming a human in the first place wasn't humiliating enough, he humbled himself further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This was a substitutionary death. He paid the penalty that you and I deserved. He took our place. He took our punishment. He didn't die against his will, but no, he sacrificed himself willingly on our behalf as a substitution in our place. He counted us more significant. And this, Paul tells us, was the result exaltation. Verse nine, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Jesus humbled himself and the father exalted him. Jesus did not seek a name for himself and the father gave him the name that is above every name. Jesus bent his knee to serve others and the father decrees that every knee will bow to him. This is the King Jesus that we serve. And if you're in the room today and you're an unbeliever, you haven't bowed the knee to Jesus, you haven't put your faith and your trust for salvation in Jesus, I wanna tell you it's gonna go a lot better for you if you do that now. God has decreed, he's exalted Christ above everything in the universe. And he said, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And you can choose to do that in humble surrender or you can choose to do that in judgment. It's gonna go a lot better for you now, I I assure you. 
One commentator said of this passage, he said, this section, although steeped in profound theology, remains eminently practical for the saints at Philippi and for believers of all ages. Paul is presenting the divine paradox, foolish to the natural man, that the way up is down, that the cross precedes a crown, that the road of exaltation by the Father is paved by humble service to others for the Father's glory. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He also said in Matthew 20, starting in verse 26, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's okay to desire to be great. That's a good desire. But remember, the way up is down. Jesus humbled himself. He gave up his life in order to serve us. And in so doing, he made unity with him and unity with one another possible. It's the only way any form of unity is even possible. And so this morning, I want to ask you, how could we not pursue unity with one another? How could we not walk in humility to serve one another? How could we not? Humbly serving one another is how we serve Jesus. Now, I just want to say, as an elder in this church, I'm usually aware when people are going through terrible things. And there's been a lot of terrible things happening in, in the lives of uh, some of our people here in the last year. Um, I was talking to somebody the other day whose family just experienced a tragic loss, and I said, hey, is what can we do? What do you need? Is there anything we can do for you? And he said, honestly, our small group has stepped up. They're, they're cutting grass. They're bringing meals. They're just pouring so much love on us. Like, I couldn't ask for anything else. He said, something he said stuck out to me. He said, I don't know how anyone goes through something like this without a small group. I don't know how anyone goes through something like this without a church family. And I just want to take a moment to applaud all of you that you guys live this out so well. I've seen it time and time again. I've been on the receiving end of it. If you're new here, you've, you picked a really loving, serving church. People are so eager to serve. People are so eager to, to sacrificially pour themselves out for others. And it is, it's truly amazing. I'm gonna call up the prayer team and the worship team. If you have a prayer need this morning, uh, these folks would love to pray with you. We're gonna conclude this morning I want to remind us all the goal of unity. I said at the beginning that unity in Christ is essential for effective gospel ministry. Unity is not the end goal. Hear me, that's important. Healthy relationships is not the end goal. The end goal of our unity with others is effective gospel ministry. Remember in John chapter 17, right before he went to the cross, Jesus prayed for his disciples and all who would believe from their message. And he said, Father, make them one. Why? So that the world may believe. And the apostle Paul, that's his point in chapter two as well. A few verses later in chapter two, he says this in verse 14 and 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is why our unity is essential because we are lights in this world. 
because people are looking to us to see the gospel in action. Our mission is too important and the stakes are too high for infighting. I want you to imagine, imagine soldiers in a war zone. You think soldiers in a war zone have time to sit and fight and bicker about stupid, petty little things? No, why? Because their mission is too important. There's lives on the line. If they can't work together as a team, people are gonna die. And I wanna challenge you this morning to understand that as Christians, we are in a war zone, a spiritual war zone. We don't wage war against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and darkness. When you say yes to Jesus, you become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And you're now in this, uh, this cosmic epic battle between good and evil, light and dark, God and Satan. And we are in a spiritual war in church. Our mission is too important. There's lives on the line. So I just want to challenge you with that this morning. Here's some takeaways for us. First, pursue unity in Christ for the sake of the gospel. Every single person in this room should be actively pursuing unity for the sake of the gospel. Secondly, follow the example of Jesus by serving others in humility. We look to the example of Jesus. We look to what he did in laying down his life for us, and we emulate that by serving others in humility. And thirdly, worship and serve the exalted Savior. As we look at what Christ has done and what that means for us, that should cause us to be in so much awe and cause us to be just sit back and worship the risen Savior. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the name above every name. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. All of human history is pointing to one thing, Jesus Christ as king over the earth, king over the heavens. So let's, let's worship him and be in awe of him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word today, Lord. It's a difficult word. It takes something. It requires something of us. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us to be obedient. Your Holy Spirit would empower us to be who we are that we'd have the mind of Christ, that we would pursue unity through humility. Lord, that we would bring you glory and honor in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.